I'll talk. Yeah, we to but I just wondering if there's anything you're interested in, particularly. <laughs> Well, okay. I'll jump in somewhere. Well, we want to know, because we're all young, we're, just for we're all young. Yeah. Just for reflection, talk about that and then and in some general reflections. It's interesting, I guess starting out with a personal anecdote is sort of a standard journalism nowadays. Like whenever you have some kind of human interest piece, always start with like some specific person, some little town somewhere and then come to the So I guess I'll you know, do contemporary journalism here and start with an anecdote. Um, well, when I, uh, I think it started in 1968, which unfortunately is not the year I was born. So in 1968, I was a, I was a student. I was at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, <coughs> and uh, I mean I had or I mean I, I had the things that you're supposed to have to have a good life. I was I was living in Beverly Hills with my family, and then I went I got a scholarship to UC Berkeley, so I was living in you know it was like the Beverly the graduate. It's kind of like, like going from Beverly Hills to Berkeley. So, and uh, I had a girlfriend who was from high school, a senior class secretary. So it's sort of a, um, a normal life in that sense. And uh, it led me personally to a lot of frustration. Not just because I didn't get along with her, but because, <laughs> I mean, in general, the whole life, because it, it, was, it was just a remarkable, it was a remarkable period in history, I think, in that, um, let me put it, because I, how should I put it? I think it would be false to think that history is entirely authored by human beings. I mean, even if you look at, say, the Old Testament tradition. There's this very strong sense that God is the God of history and that God appears within history and guides and, and changes history. In India, you have a similar concept. Uh, you may have heard the word well, avatar. In America, they say avatar. And uh, avatar literally means a, I mean, very literally crossing down, crossing down in the sense that some being, either God or some other goddess or some, just some empowered being crosses from the spiritual realm down to the material realm to try to knock some sense into our heads or something, or explain things to us. So, so in that sense, in the 60s, it was, um, I know it's been talked about too much, I hate to do this to you, you know, some of the 60s, talking about the 60s, but... <laughs> But um, I want to talk about not to be nostalgic about you know the boomer generation, but rather uh, just to say that I think it was an example of, of sort of like a historical opening, where suddenly history kind of shifted a bit, and there was like a window into some other 
possibilities. I won't go into the whole thing, you know, the World War II and the 50s and the 60s and all that. I'm sure you've heard that enough. But I'll tell a personal anecdote. And that is, I was, uh, when I graduated high school, actually, I almost flunked out of high school. I, I was in a situation that I, I, I was automatically admitted to the University of California based on my SAT scores, and I was flunking out of high school because I kind of lost interest. So anyway, so what? Before or after that, before after then. No, no, I, 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 got, I, I got into UC automatically on my SAT scores. I was also a National Merit Finalist. So I was being recruited by all these colleges, and I was flunking out of high school. So I was really bored. So anyway, the, the school administration cut a deal with me that I had to go and apologize to all my teachers for, <laughs> anyway, being a little frivolous in class. And uh, in return, I got, I got courtesy Ds in all my classes. So... So uh, I, I didn't really, I mean, materially it was funny. I really had, I didn't have any real material ambition at that time. I wasn't, like, really focused on any particular career. So I went, just went to UCLA. And uh, then my girlfriend kept, uh, well, insisted I go to Berkeley because she had gone to Berkeley. So then I, I transferred to Berkeley dutifully. But, but the interesting thing, this is why I want to get into the interesting part. And that is um, when I went to Berkeley, uh, to visit first. I, I went up to visit with some friends and uh, I guess in the fall of 1966, my God. That must seem like right just after the fall of Rome or something for you guys. <laughs> so anyway, when I, went, when I went up to Berkeley, you could actually feel, how do I say it, you could feel history in the air. Because at that time they were having the free speech movement in Berkeley, and you could just feel that something, it's almost like you could feel that, that time, or the history was pivoting in that place or something. Something was happening. You could really feel it, and I felt it. And uh, so then I transferred up there and uh, was introduced into the wide world of hedonism. Because it was also a time of, of it, it's interesting, because if you study history dialectically, as Hegel <coughs> and Marx did, then there's the idea there's a thesis and an anti-thesis, an antithesis, and then the synthesis, S-Y-N. Actually, the Sanskrit S-A-M, sung together, the together thesis. So, anyway, uh, so you have, there was this, there, civilizations tend to be governed by a metaphysical consensus. Like there was a time in Europe when uh, Europe was Christendom, it was the kingdom of Christ on earth. And then that sort of religious or metaphysical consensus dissolved with the Renaissance and the scientific revolution and anyway, the whole thing. So uh, similarly, let's say after World War II roughly, there was a type of consensus in America. There was a, you know, I mean, Hollywood actually mercilessly kind of, I would say, caricatures the 50s, having grown up in the 50s, I think. I think Hollywood movies about the 50s often tell us more about Hollywood than about the 50s. But it is fair to say, it is fair to say that um, there was a type of agreement in the world. Obviously, there were Republicans and Democrats, there were liberals and conservatives, but in a broader sense, people kind of agreed on a lot of basic things in the 50s, not all of which were evil and uh, and so on. But in the 60s, that started to break down. So, I mean, societies, in order really to, to hang together, in order to 
coalesce as a society. They have to sooner or later agree on some important values in order to not come unhinged, so to speak. So, so the, the cultural consensus, even the metaphysical consensus, it's not just cultural, like everyone liked the same kind of thing, everyone liked, you know, Bobby Darren or, I don't know, something like that, or Perry Como. It wasn't just that, it was that um, it was a metaphysical consensus. By metaphysical, I mean there was, rough, there was a rough agreement about what is justice and what's fair and uh, what's the proper role of religion in public life. And there were debates and all kinds of things going on. I don't mean to say everyone agreed, but there was, it was within boundaries. There was roughly an agreement among a lot of people about these things. And then in the 60s, that metaphysical consensus, well, it sort of broke down. It really broke down. Some of it had a lot to do with drugs, Timothy Leary and LSD, and uh, other drugs becoming available. So, because when people took certain kinds of drugs and, and, and went into an altered state of consciousness, suddenly they, they, it relativized what they previously had accepted as simply the reality. It's almost like, you know, let's say the people that live in, well, say a college town, because in a college town you have a faculty of all kinds of people from different parts of the world. <coughs> college towns, almost invariably, at least major college towns, are more liberal more cosmopolitan than, let's say, towns of the same size that don't have a major educational institution, or coastal towns, because trade nowadays is, you know, at least it used to be by ship. So, let's say Los Angeles obviously is more liberal than Bakersfield, California, or something like that. So, uh, so when when you're suddenly faced with variety and diversity, and you and you take the diversity seriously, you don't just hate it and reject it then relativizes what previously you would accept as sort of uncritically just be reality. So that can happen by traveling, it can happen by people traveling to you, it can happen by reading books, or it can happen by, well, sometimes suddenly, for whatever, whatever reason, either meditation or drugs, going into an altered state of consciousness. So it, it relativizes people, what people have uncritically accepted as just the real world. Anyway, uh, and this led to all kinds of things. There's a sexual revolution based on uh, an amazingly hypocritical postulate, which was that uh, sort of the battle cry of the sexual revolution was sex is natural. And then in order to avoid the, let's say, some embarrassing consequences of sexual intercourse, people took birth control pills which are, or used other devices, which of course are completely artificial. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of hilarious to say that, you know, sex is natural. Anyway, it's another topic. So, so is pregnancy, and so is raising children. So, but anyway, so, um, okay, get back on message. I need a handler. You know, if you like these candidates, they have handlers that keep them on message. So, um, that happened to me also. I, I was suddenly faced with all sort of this radical relativizing of what I had politely accepted as, as reality. And at a certain point, it occurred to me that um, that everyone's putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, in a sense. I didn't really know who I was. Who am I really? Where have I come from? What is my... I mean, I knew I could fill out a form like last name, first name, middle name, and all that stuff. But apart from filling forms out, who am I really? Why do I exist at all, and, and where do I come from, in, in an ultimate sense, and where am I going? So, um, 
I started to become so frustrated with sort of ordinary material life, which a lot of people did then. I mean, it was a sort of a common thing back then. At one point, it, I, it seemed that life, material life, was sort of like animal life. It was a sophisticated version of animal life in the sense you have to work hard and get money so you can get, you know, get a nice house and eat in restaurants and have a nice car. Sort of, I mean, animals do that. They transport themselves somehow or other. They have dwellings. and It's just sort of a sophisticated form of animalism. So I became so frustrated at one point, I, I, I decided I had to get away from America. So I looked at a map and found the most remote place in the world I could find, which seemed to be Micronesia. And I decided to join the Peace Corps and go to Micronesia. I had an older brother also at Berkeley, and he sort of put his arm on my shoulder and said, can we talk about this? So I didn't go to Micronesia. <laughs> then, uh, but I did go to Europe. There was, so it was almost like a pilgrimage, like Muslims at least once in life should go to Mecca. So college is back then. I don't know how it is now, but back then you're supposed to go to Europe. Now you can probably afford it. Back then, you, I mean, they had all these books then, like Europe on $3 a day, Europe on $2 a day. Now it would be Europe on $300 a day. But in any case, I went to Europe, and I traveled all, I got a Eurail pass, I went from the Arctic Circle down to North Africa, and drove a motorbike off a cliff. And somehow survived, got held up at knife point in Morocco, <laughs> and somehow talked my way out of it, and got thrown out of a furniture store in Heidelberg, Germany. Anyway, I had all kinds of adventures. <laughs> I, I was 19 then. So, uh, but then after going, doing all these things, and a lot more than we'll mention, um, I was sort of I was sort of coming to the last several weeks of my tour, and I was taking a train from from southern Spain, where I'd gone to Africa, back to Madrid. And I was going to Paris and London and back home, and uh, I realized that Europe, with all its sophistication, with all its culture and history and all that, was sort of a just a more cultured America in a sense. It was kind of like the same materialism, the same animalism. There was there was nothing really enlightening per se in it. So then, and I used to keep a journal. I was like a writer, you know. I'd go around writing. So, I, so, uh, I, just, I somehow made a decision on that train in Spain. I was traveling with some, there was some young person about my age, a guy who was an artist from Paris, and he wanted to travel with me, so he was in the train too. And uh, so going back to Madrid, I actually made a decision. I, I wrote my journal that I wanted to find God. That, um, that unless I knew what God is, what I am, and where the world comes from, it was absurd to get, quote-unquote, motivated. It's like if I'm basically blind, I don't really know where I am, who I am, what am I going to get motivated about? So I made that conscious decision, and, and I, I went back to Berkeley. I had to stay in college because of the Vietnam War. It was like, you know, do you want to crawl on your belly in a jungle, maybe get your throat cut with a knife, or would you rather stay in college? So I thought about it really hard. I thought, well, I guess I'll stay in college. So, anyway, when I got back, I consciously, I consciously decided I was going to focus my life on trying to understand who am I, what is God, what is consciousness, how do I exist, and so on. And uh, so that became my meditation, really. I was just constantly... I visited or talked to representatives of every 
basically every major religion, because I was open-minded, and I took it for granted that God was present everywhere. And uh, I... How you doing? It's okay. It's, no, just more than anything. Well, you unleashed me. I mean, you, 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 next time you'll be more careful what you ask me. I want to hear more. Oh, okay. I want to hear about the motorcycle. I have a lot more questions. Motorcycle office. That was actually on a, on a small Greek island. So, uh, is that the story of my life? Here's that movie Airplane, that old funny movie where some guy kept driving people to suicide by telling his life story. <laughs> Something like that is happening. So, <laughs> anyway, so I, I was, we're in Berkeley in 1969. Mm. I all these people and they believe that Berkeley. So don't tell them that. Anyway, so I was, I was going around and talking. In those days, Berkeley was... Um, it's like the whole world was in Berkeley. I mean, when you, let's say when you walked across the campus, you could, you could and would meet people from all around the world, from every conceivable religion, from every, it was just, it was like this big, I don't know you call it, like world fair going on constantly. So, um, anyway, after, after visiting, you know, talking about every religion and, and assuming, as I did, and, and as I still do, that there was some truth and wisdom in all these traditions, I mean, I talked to people who were decent and nice people, not dangerous, weird things, so they didn't speak to terrorists. So, the idea is that... Um, well, I, I think I came to two conclusions after visiting all, and talking to representatives of all these different religions and actually seeing real wisdom or even the presence of God in all these different traditions. One conclusion was that... Um, actually, a few. Well, one was that I didn't want mere faith. I didn't just want a doctrine. I actually wanted a reasonable explanation of the important principles in life, reasonable answers to important questions in life. I, I didn't just want to, I didn't want a leap of faith. I wanted to, I wanted my faith and my reason to uh, not be divorced or estranged from each other. I wanted, to, I wanted to develop faith in a way that was completely acceptable to my critical intelligence. That was one thing. And another point was that um, I was kind of allergic to hypocrisy. In the sense that, I mean, I was a hedonist, and I didn't want to follow a religious teacher who was also a hedonist. Or, no, I wanted, I wanted, I was looking for a process, not just a faith. I needed philosophy. I needed, I needed a reasonable explanation of everything, and I needed a practice. I wanted to be in higher consciousness. I, I know it's because, like, you know, you go to different places and they try to be. You know, people are real nice and friendly in America now. 
you know, so you can go into any commercial thing and hide. So I did, I did just want to be love bombed or, because I actually had a lot of friends. I had a very nice, affectionate family. I had lots of friends and everything, and I didn't, I wasn't lonely and looking for <coughs> someone who would pay attention to me. And I wasn't looking, I didn't, I didn't want to leap into a dogma. Come on in. It's okay. I have, I have a chair. For those of you who came in late, I, I'm proselytizing. So, let's see, where was I? Yeah, another, yeah, I actually, I'm telling you a story of my life, which will, this is actually will take about a week. So we we bring in water bottles and energy pills to keep you all healthy. So another thing is I wanted to, I wanted to be in a higher state of consciousness, especially because in those days people would in various artificial ways induce higher states of consciousness or at least different states of consciousness. And uh, I wanted something I wanted something practical. I wanted a process that would take me permanently to a higher state of consciousness. I wasn't looking for just powerful experience or mystic insight. I actually wanted to get to a, cru- a cognitive cruising altitude where I could actually come to a higher state of awareness that would take me beyond all of the sort of the, the silly hypocrisy and vanity and suffering of ordinary material consciousness and, and just be there. I, I wanted to be in a higher state of consciousness, not just have an experience. And um, so when I saw, well, I saw people who seemed very sincere and go out and preach about God, but their personal lives were kind of like mine in many ways. They seemed to do the same kinds of things I did when they were off camera. So I didn't want that. And, I, and I, again, I want philosophy, not dogma. And uh, then in 19, I guess around January, February 69, my the person who became my teacher probably came to Berkeley and gave a lecture there on the street where I lived, actually. And so I, I attended that lecture, and uh, I became inspired by his purity. When I, when I heard the lecture, uh, my teacher probably must have been, let's see, that was 69. He was 73 years old. And he was dancing in ecstasy, actually. The Kirtan that shouted here, he actually began dancing in ecstasy. And, and the Kirtan was very powerful. I, I could feel that that it was a real spiritual thing. I saw that the, the people, the practitioners, the devotees were really had a significantly different life. They were actually engaged in a spiritual practice. It's like, let's say you go to college. You want to learn some science or some discipline or some profession or whatever. I mean, you could go and hang out with people and just sit around and read books and, hey, this is a really cool book. And, but when you go to college, and there's classes and assignments, and there's degree, it's just different. I mean, it's much more serious. It's like, let's say you can, uh, well, let's say you like some sport. Like, you know, I was really into sports when I was young, and uh, I still am. So, you know, you play games with your friends. Like, go down to the gym, or you go out to the field. And, you know, you do something. But if you want to be a serious athlete, if you're trying to compete as an athlete, it's very different. You need a discipline. You actually, you know, there's a whole thing. So, same thing with music. It's one thing to sort of, you know, goof off on the piano or the, you know, guitar or whatever. It's another thing to actually become a serious musician. 
So in the same way, uh, I was at a point in my life where I didn't just want to dabble in spirituality. I actually wanted to, in a very serious, systematic way, achieve a higher state of consciousness. Now that, that's actually what life is all about. And everything else is just everything else. So, uh, that's one thing that attracted me to what I ended up doing, is that there was a systematic discipline. It was like going to college as opposed to, you know, drinking coffee at Barnes & Noble. So... What's that? No, no, no. No, before the great wave of amalgam, corporate amalgamation. So, um... Well, then I, I, I began, to be honest, I began chanting Hare Krishna and, uh, and studying the literature and I, I saw that I was actually coming to a higher state of consciousness. What really closed me, as they say in, you know, in, in car dealerships, the closer, the closer was, so, so to speak, the philosophical floor mats they throw in at the end to close the deal. Like, I'll throw in the floor mats if you buy this car today. <laughs> So what really closed the deal for me was the ontology. Ontology is the branch of philosophy that deals with uh, the nature of being, the nature of existence. And it's just my nature. Everyone has a different nature. Some people can just relate to something artistically, emotionally, or mystically. And I needed a clear explanation. I want to know, like, where am I? What am I doing? What's this really about? Give me a map. I want to know exactly what this is and where I'm going why I'm going there. That was just my own temperament. And it still is. But anyway, so, the, the thing I really liked was the notion that the relationship between the existence of God and our existence is simultaneously one and different. I'll explain that, because I see no one said, aha. It's, um, the idea is, if you look historically, look at the history of religions or the history of mysticism in this world, you'll find that virtually in every part of the world, you'll find in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, everywhere, you'll find what's called monism. At least some people. Monism, which literally means... Come on in. I'll think about it. We'll do mediation. So... Monism is um, literally, like from the Greek, I guess, it, it means oneism. Monism means oneism. It, the idea that everything is, is ultimately one. And the, the appearance of duality, or the appearance of difference, like, like there are different objects in this room, inanimate and animate, you think they're different shapes, or you have different organs and limbs in your body, there's different people. Just difference, variety, all the varieties of color, or shape, or varieties of sounds. If you have only one note, there's no music, right? You have, well, some modern music theorists think you can just play one note, but unfortunately the world ignores them. So... We <laughs> 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 get an upgrade there. As soon as you have two notes, as soon as you have two notes, then you have a ratio, and you actually start that musically. Da dun, da dun. You get boring very fast, but at least it's, it's a melody line. 
if you have three notes, so it's like you have possibilities exponentially expand for melody if you have three notes and so on. Similarly, if, you, if there was only one color, everything in the world, everything was exactly the same shape, or if we perceived it that way, you would have no notion of color. You, you would not have the idea of color in your head. If there's two shades, or even three, then just the very category color. So, so variety, variety. But there are some people that are argued in every tradition. And I, you know, I go through the whole list in all the world religions, but there have been thinkers in every tradition that have argued that ultimately everything is one, that variety is illusion, and that we are part of the one. So there's, there's really no difference between ourselves and anything else. All that exists is really the same thing. This sounds a little, quote-unquote, deep, but it's also very counterintuitive, and I think ultimately people that espouse this tend to say you can't describe it in words. Not because it's a truth you can't describe in words, but because it's I think, ultimately incoherent, given the actual nature of the world. In other words, it sounds interesting and appealing, but ultimately there is variety which you can't just ignore. And, and, and if things are ultimately just one, where does the variety come from? Because even if you... If, because if everything is one, then we falsely think that there are many. That means there's an illusion, so there's truth and illusion. So that's two things right there. And then as you're practicing, you gradually become enlightened. So there's three things. There's truth, illusion, and halfway point. And so, and even to say it's all one, it takes at least, well, it's all one, I guess that's three and a half words. So, I don't know how you want to do a word. So, and yet there is something compelling about it, despite the fact that to say everything's absolutely one, really... It doesn't really explain the world that well. And yet there's something appealing about it. And yet to say that variety also has its appeal. If there's no variety, there wouldn't be relationships. If you have a relationship with someone else, there's two people. I mean, I mean, consider relationship. Let's say two people are in love. If it's healthy, if it's a healthy relationship from a psychological standpoint, uh, each person remains an individual. You don't literally totally lose yourself so that you just don't exist anymore as an individual. Psychologically, people, you know, they call it codependency or something. And at the same time, there is a oneness. When two people really become a couple, there's like a, a new, a third reality. There was like, you know, there was Dick and there was Jane. And then you get, I guess, Dane. Anyway, so there was Dick and there was Jane. And there's just two people. And then let's say they fall madly in love with each other, or whatever, sanely in love with each other. And then... They're a couple, so it's like a third thing. In fact, I was just making that point the other day. Grammatically, you say a couple. They are a couple. It's a singular. And so, or a family, a community, a nation. So there's a sense in which a group can be a single thing. And so a family, a couple, a community, a team, is an example of unity and diversity. So you have oneness and, and difference at the same time. So that, uh, according to the teachings of Bhagavad Gita, are, that's the ultimate nature of reality, that all things that exist are simultaneously one and different. So that all of us are one, and yet we're different. We are individuals, and yet there's a sense in which we're one. So there are, there are cultures that emphasize, perhaps overemphasize your collective identity. So people, there's not much creativity. 
and uh, people really don't have a strong sense of being individuals. Sometimes in America, they go very far the other side. And so, so there's actually a healthy balance where you can actually relate to in a, in, a, in a powerful way other people, be a team player, actually experience what it means to be in a, to have a loving relationship, to be in a united family, or to be in a, a close-knit community. And yet at the same time, uh, you're still strong as an individual. And this ultimately is relationship with God also. That there's a oneness, there's a sense in which we are one with God, and there's a sense in which we're individuals. Now, Middle Eastern traditions, which the three major Middle Eastern traditions are, of course, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, at least in their origins, tended to stress the duality, tended to stress the difference, like we're very different from God. Now, all those traditions had certain mystic wings that got into the oneness, of course. But if you look sort of the mainstream orthodoxy, it tended to be dualistic. And certain Eastern traditions tend to stress the oneness. And, and in fact, there, there's even like this sort of the stereotype, which is somewhat crude and has lots of exceptions, but still there's some truth in the stereotype that Western traditions tended to be uh, more individual, stress the duality like you fall far short of the glory of God, or in certain Jewish traditions you can't even say the name of God because God is so holy and you're so unholy that don't even say God's name, and so on. So the Western traditions, I mean, I mean this, and I think this tendency for the West to be somewhat dualistic and the East to be somewhat monistic has something to do with general cultural traits which became very evident even two and a half thousand years ago or earlier. For example, well, take Alexander's. 300 years ago or something. Alexander the Great. Um, even when, when the Europeans, the Greeks, went into, basically took over the Persian Empire and um, other areas, there was this real cultural clash. In fact, it went back even before Alexander where the Greeks who were on the border of the East, they perceived the Eastern world as being overly hierarchical, like people were too, what's the word, had too much of a collective identity. <coughs> they weren't individualistic enough. <coughs> they submitted too much of, to authority. In the West, they were more rugged individualists. And the people in the East thought the people in the West were kind of barbarians. Like they were crude and just, un, you know, uncivil. And so there was always kind of this cultural tension. And, uh, <coughs> So the, the tendency in the East to be more submissive to authority, which you say in India, I mean, there, again, it, it's a, it may be stereotypical or generalization, but there was some truth to it. I mean, there is some truth to it. They have more of a collective identity. And so in the East, you find central doctrines of monism where, like we're all one, you sort of lose your individuality, you lose your ego, and, and the collectivity is the truth, period. <coughs> again, these are rough generalizations with some validity. And in the Western world, or the Middle Eastern traditions in the Western world, being very dualistic, like God is God and you are you and you're really far apart. So, anyway, the, the, the teaching, the Gita is one and different. And, and it's not the only place you find it. There was a Jewish philosopher named Philo who lived in Alexandria around the time of Jesus who taught the same doctrine. You also find it people like Plotinus, the Roman philosopher. So, 
So that basic truth that we are one with God and yet we are also different. That we are quantitative, say qualitatively one with God. The quality of our existence is one with God's existence precisely because we are part of God. So I mean there's a sense of which let's say your own limbs or your own energy is one with you because it's your energy. And so we are the energy of God. Or like the sun rays coming from the sun. God is like the sun. Of course this is also Plato. God is like the sun, and we're like the sun rays. So this, so you could say the sun and sunshine is one. It's just the sun shining. At the same time, you've seen those cutaway drawings in astronomy books, where you have all the different parts of the sun. You know, there's the sun, I don't know, the core, and the surface, whatever between the core and the surface. And then there's the sunspots, the sunshine, and there's all, you know, there's all kinds. It's a whole system. The sun itself is a solar system. Isn't it? I mean, the sun itself is a system. And yet it's all one, and yet it's just the sun shining. So in one sense, everything is one. Well, there's a sense in which everything is one, because all that exists, really, is just God shining. It's just God doing his thing, God shining. But that energy that flows from God is us. We are actually the energy of God. And material nature, I hope no one's offended by this, but it does matter. Nowadays, you don't know what offend people, but dead matter is uh, is also the energy of God, but it's the inferior energy. We're still allowed to use that word. Inferior in the sense that um, it's not conscious. I mean, a simple example: if if I say to you, you're just using your friend, that's a serious moral accusation. You're using these people. But if I say Man, you're just using that chair. It doesn't have the same. So there really are two kinds of things in the world. There's living things and non-living things, conscious things and things that aren't conscious. So they're both the energy of God, but as Krishna says in the Gita, we, because we're conscious and living, are superior. But that includes all life forms. It's not just human beings. Anything that is alive, anything... First of all, anything that's alive is alive does have consciousness. And anything that's alive and conscious is a soul. And, and, and what's different is the bodies. For example, when we had infant bodies, uh, we were retarded. You know, cute, but retarded. Cute and, I don't know, cuddly and all that, but retarded. Because your brain's not developed. I mean, not literally retarded, because you might have been a precocious baby, but when, as the body grows, your consciousness manifests. It's not that, how should I put it? You as a soul always have the same consciousness, but when your body permits the consciousness to manifest, it does. Take these light fixtures. There's some, I mean, the electricity, let's say you have, you have an unlimited supply of electricity. So you put in a 20-watt bulb, 40 watts, 60 watts, 80, 100, 1,000, you know, like stadium lights, or whatever. Uh, it depends on the, it depends on the, how much electricity you can conduct and, and, and manifest. Electricity's there. It just depends on the, on the fixture or the light bulb. So in the same way, we have actually unlimited consciousness. We have tremendous consciousness inside. But... Uh, when you're a baby, it just doesn't, that's, that's like a, like a five-watt bulb or something, in terms of consciousness. And as you get, get older, it's like, you know, your brain keeps getting upgraded. 
10 watts, 20, 30, 40, 50. And ultimately, you reach a certain limit, like a ceiling, where uh, you have to, your body, you have to proceed spiritually. You reach a certain point where the nervous system as such, if you just rely on material means, your consciousness is kind of maxed out at a certain point. And if you want to go further, you have to actually, consciousness has to grow independent, so to speak, of the, I mean, spiritually, consciousness has to focus on itself. You act, and you have to realize yourself as an independent, free, conscious being and not be completely dependent on the material senses or, or just material reasoning. Now, once you develop higher consciousness, you can use your senses. I mean, I mean a person in higher consciousness uses the body because when you look out at the world, you see spiritual things. When you, when you hear sounds, Basically, you develop the ability to hear and see and touch and smell and taste everything as spiritual energy, even the material world, because it's coming from God. And you see yourself within the body as an eternal spiritual being. It's not, it's not like a doctrine or something except on faith and cross your fingers when you die. You actually experience it. It's because there's a Sanskrit term. I mean, the yogis use this term, jiva mukta, which means even in life, even living in this world, you become, your consciousness becomes liberated and you can see the truth. So, that's uh, what life is supposed to be for. And in the meantime, of course, you have to have a roof over your head and uh, healthy food and some conveyance to get you from point A to point B. But the idea of completely neglecting self-realization so you can just collect material things like, I want a bigger house or, you know, my... I own a car now, but it's not completely shattering the ozone, or, you know, or it's not completely destroying the earth, so let me get a, a better car that, that will, if I can do my part, to destroy the earth. Let me get a big house I don't need so I can heat it and, you know, waste energies. It's, uh, so rather than just accumulating these, I mean, you all know, that this is just like, I mean, every wisdom tradition in the world says the same thing, so this is not something new to you. But we're really supposed to be about self-realization. We're supposed to be figuring... I mean, imagine if you woke up... Like, let's say you suddenly fell into a Twilight Zone episode. And you woke up one morning, and you were in some strange land. You didn't know how you got there, and you couldn't remember, like, how you got there. Or you couldn't remember who you were. You just, like, sort of blanked out. I mean, you would, you know, let's say you're in this Twilight Zone episode. And so you, you go around trying to figure out, like, who am I? Where am I? How did I get here? Where's my real home? that we are in a Twilight Zone episode. It's called Life on Earth. And we're supposed to be asking, like, who am I? How did I get here? Where am I going when I leave this world? What's this all about? Who made this place? I mean, just very briefly, uh, there's, there's a traditional philosophical argument which has been used for many thousands of years. It's called the argument from design. Uh, well, sadly, I was going to say hilariously, but I guess it's not hilarious to have a deeply ignorant judiciary in this country. But, so I would say sadly, when uh, certain groups have, say, gone to court saying in addition to the teaching of evolution, they should also teach intelligent design. I'm not referring to uh, Old Testament creationism where the earth is like 4,000 years old or something or whatever. I'm not talking at all about that. That's, I can't quite make that hurt myself. 
what I'm talking about is a philosophical argument, not a religious argument. A philosophical argument, and unfortunately, the judiciary in this country doesn't really know the difference, which is a credit to their education. But it's a philosophical argument which actually predates Christianity by half a millennium. In other words, let's say from today, 2008, to the year 1508, it was that long before Christianity, and even earlier than actually, that people were giving that argument. Pagans. That was a pagan philosophical argument. Philosophical, not religious. That if you study the world, just the way the world is, the, the fantastic complexity, and our understanding of that complexity has dramatically, exponentially increased with microbiology and all this stuff. So, given the jaw-dropping, fantastic, psychedelic complexity of the world as we know it, the most reasonable explanation philosophically, not religiously, is that somehow or other there's intelligence behind the structure of the universe. Again, a philosophical, not a religious argument. And the American judiciary does not know the difference. They take this philosophy to be a Trojan horse trying to, you know, drag us back to the Middle Ages and, uh, you know, it's, it's a Christian Trojan horse. In any case, the simple fact is, if you study philosophy, it's a good argument. Now, it doesn't give you the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It just gives you an intelligent designer. Which is why it's not a religious argument because philosophy doesn't give you the God of religion. It just gives you a designer. But in any case, assuming that there is some kind of intelligent designer, I mean, arguments for a God of religion have to be made on other grounds based on you know, certain ways of analyzing the moral assumptions that are seem to be embedded within our human psychology. So there are, I mean, that would be like, almost like a, a metaphysical argument from design, but it's a different argument. But in terms of just the way the world is, if there is a designer, isn't that what we should be trying to find out? It's like, if, you, if there's one thing you could know, wouldn't that be it? Otherwise, it's, it's like, you know, it's like the crazy guy that's trying to assemble some piece of furniture, you know, you just drove home from where you assemble it yourself, and it's like, you know, three days later, it's like, don't tell me, I, I know I can get this. And, and, and like they say, if everything else fails, read the directions. So, if, if there is a designer of the universe, and if we can somehow connect to the designer, and by the way, the word connect in Sanskrit is yoga. That's what the word yoga actually means. The exercises and all that, they're, they're nice actually, and, and they're, I mean, they're good for you. But that is not in and of itself the whole yoga thing. That was just that was just the exercises about <coughs> postures were just to get you healthy so you could sit for long periods of time and meditate without going crazy and you're you know getting cramps all over your body and everything. But in any case, yoga, the actual word yoga means connection or link, and it means you connect yourself to the designer of the universe. And once you do that, then there are infinite possibilities. There are infinite possibilities if you're actually connected through consciousness to the intelligence which brought the universe about. Anyway, I, mean, I, I can go on a long time. Any questions about these points? No refunds. <laughs> um, 
Wait, why would you say um, living like organisms are superior to like say I don't know, a rock? Okay. Just out of curiosity. Sure, sure. No, it's a good question. Because at some level it basically made it the same. It's just one knows it is and one doesn't. Uh Okay, it's a good question. Um, I'm sort of assuming the rock is not like a living crystal or something. No, I don't know. Just like yeah. the rock. <laughs> As in, or, or a doornail, like this doornail, or a rock. Okay, so, rock or doornail. If we take ourselves to be the body, like when you look in the mirror, you know, the mirror around the wall, that's you, then you could say yes. It's the same matter. There's only one kind of matter. It's just a different configuration of it. But the first spiritual lesson that's taught in the Bhagavad Gita is that we we are not bodies that have souls. Sometimes it's that idea like I'm this body and the soul is like this little spiritual battery inside of me that sort of keeps me ticking. But it's the opposite. We are not bodies that have souls. We are souls that have bodies. Just like you have your clothes. I'm glad to see everyone here is decent and it's dressed for the occasion. So, it's like we wear clothes and, but we're not the clothes. Although some people, you know, it's like you are what you wear. And some people are deeply, deeply immersed in fashion. And like as soon as their, you know, fashion changes, they basically need a new wardrobe. So, I mean, if you think psychologically, I mean, obviously we are not our clothes. I mean, but, but think, but, psychologically, we're not so clear about it. Because there are people who, when, they, when they're dressed well, they, it changes their self-awareness or their, or their self-conception. I come from a place, Southern California, where you are when you drive. So, you know, someone drives off, let's say, the lawn with his new Lexus or something. I mean, there's really a sense like, yes, now I am somehow like this Lexus has become part of my identity. Like I think of the common phrase, I identify with something. People really do, in a, in, in a deep and unfortunate psychological way, they identify with their clothes, with their cars, and also with their bodies. And so identification with the body is in that same category. It's in the same psychological ca- category. And Sanskrit is called Aropana which means imposition, like like you impose something upon yourself, but you really aren't. Who are you? Don't let that That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, now consider, going back to your question, consider that if it's a case, that we really are not the body, we are in the body. We are a completely different kind of thing. We are consciousness. Or we, are, we are spiritual entities. It's a different kind of energy. And we are consciousness. If you think about consciousness, think about consciousness itself, not consciousness of something. Like We're not a, a shade of consciousness like sadness or happiness or excitement or boredom or, let's say, knowledge of engineering. Not the content or the mood of consciousness, but just consciousness itself, the power of consciousness. It's not material. It's not a material thing. Now, there is a philosophy that it's an epiphenomenon. I'll give you an example that was given by a 
a leading philosopher at Berkeley, who admitted that consciousness is different from matter, but it's every phenomenon means it kind of pops out of something else as a byproduct. So he said, like, like take a water molecule, and one water water molecule doesn't float; it's not liquid. But if you get a whole bunch of them, they take on the characteristic of liquidity. So therefore, uh, anyway, that was the I thought it wasn't really a great argument because if you take one water molecule, it's basically a material thing that has certain material properties. And so as we know, the properties of something change when you change the temperature of it, when you change the volume of it, or when you put pressure on it or remove pressure. And we all know that. For example, well, here's something you probably never thought of. You can freeze water. And <laughs> when you do, the properties change, right? It goes from liquid to solid. There are amazing things you can learn here that you could never learn anywhere else. <laughs> but anyway, the philosophical point is that the properties of things change. Again, you change temperature or volume or pressure, all kinds of things. However, we are still, so to speak, in the same ontological ballpark. We're still talking about material properties. None of those properties, liquidity, solidity, vaporicity. None of these, all these, none of these properties are consciousness. They're just different kinds of material qualities. In fact, if you analyze and say, according to physics, if you, if you like, say, wrote some equations to explain liquidity, something like that, you're still, you can, I mean, you can use the same, basically the same physics to describe all these different things, solidity, liquidity, you see what I mean? But what physics describes consciousness? Physics may describe the content of consciousness, like, let's say, you know, I'm thinking about how much time it will take to get from here to there. What time should I leave? What time should I head home? How much should I eat in order to have enough energy? You know what I mean? You can calculate, but we're not talking about the content of consciousness. We're talking about the consciousness itself, the awareness itself, not its object. So when you think about consciousness, there are no, there's no kind of physics, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Newtonian, Einsteinian, or, uh, you know, relative relativity, or quantum. There's no kinds of physics which describes the experience of just being conscious. It's a completely different kind of thing. And so, if you just... Now, Descartes. You heard of Descartes, right? Of the cards. He was a mean poker player. Anyway, Descartes. He was this philosopher in the 17th century. He, uh, he did something which was very radical for his time. Because in the 17th century, 1600s, it was still like, you know, a very Christian world. And you were supposed to accept the authority of the Bible and depending on what church you were in, priests or whatever. Anyway, I'll comment on those things. So, Descartes said, let me imagine, let me imagine that I don't know anything. Which is a radical thing to say back then. Let me imagine, I, let me doubt everything. Everything I think I know may be untrue. Everything may be a mistake. So I don't know anything with certainty. And I'm just going to sit down and 
try to figure out, is there anything that I cannot doubt? Is there anything which is, cannot possibly be untrue? And he came up with cogito, ergo sum. I'm thinking, therefore I exist. I'm thinking, therefore I exist. Because if I say, well, maybe I don't exist, but how could I not exist if I just said maybe I don't exist? So Descartes, Descartes felt that you cannot doubt that you exist. Now, interestingly, this was challenged by Buddhism. Certain forms of Buddhism, certain forms of Buddhism, which ultimately, how should I put it, those forms of Buddhism did not become a great world religion that Buddhism is because it's, it's too counterintuitive. But, so, but, but you can, I mean, the, the Buddhism that kind of became world religion in different parts of the world uh, didn't push that so strongly. But you could, that, you could say to Descartes, maybe you just think you're a person, maybe you're not really a person. But, uh, I think, anyway, I don't want to go too technically into this, but Descartes can simply answer that whatever I am, I'm thinking. Whatever it is, whatever, you know, there's something thinking right now and it exists, otherwise it couldn't think. But Descartes said, Cogito, I think, therefore I am. So, the reason I bring up Descartes here is that, and you find the same thing in the whole yoga tradition, which is going on for thousands of years, that what you know more than you know anything else is not empirical things. I mean, there's a time in Western intellectual history when the rationalists and the empirical scientists were not the same people. They were very different people. And nowadays, everything kind of caved into empirical science. But Descartes' point was that the things I perceive with my senses, like I'm in this room or things are a particular color, I might be an illusion about that. And we know that sometimes through intoxication, through mental illness, through impairment of our neurological faculties and so on, or damage, we can imagine things that aren't there. I mean, there are many ways in which we are bewildered about the world out there. And so Descartes' point was that not empiricism, but actually meditation, is your most reliable form of knowledge. So that your direct, immediate knowledge that you exist, your direct, immediate knowledge that you're consciousness, and your ability to think about what it means that you exist in your conscious, is actually prior to, and in a sense epistemologically superior to, anything you could believe you know about the world. Like, it's a brown table, so where's the brownness? Is it, is it in my, you know, is it in my eye? Is it in the table? Is it in between? I mean, we won't go crazy over that tonight, but the thing that, so there's a sense in which you're aware, and that was the whole thing in yoga. I mean, I'm not saying renounce the world, the world's all illusion. I personally believe there really is a brown table there, but as much as we can know that there's a brown table, you, by meditation or by, by which is also mantra meditation, by through mantras and chanting, and, and by spiritual practice, the most immediate reality, the, the the most fundamental reality available to you is your own existence as a conscious being. And so, I have to get back to your question. So, um, I bring this up because, oh, yeah, I haven't addressed your question. Because the rock, I mean, we could put a rock on the table and it's, I mean, you can always say like, you know, maybe rocks are actually more conscious than we are, how do you know, but Whatever. It's, I don't I really think they are, but 
So you as a soul, as a conscious being, the, I mean, consciousness is, in that sense, superior. I mean, you see what I mean? I mean, I mean yeah, I, I just ask because, um, like, I know with, um, some, with the most recent developments with quantum mechanics and things, some people believe the very basis of all existence, regardless if it's empirical or rational, is consciousness. That, right. um, even matter at some base level is consciousness, like the realization of a possibility. So while the rock can't pursue truth right. because it doesn't think, um, because it's created by consciousness as we are created by consciousness, it's still a part of God. And I guess you could Oh say yeah, that, definitely. definitely. But I guess I mean I guess you could say that we're superior in the fact that we can further pursue truth objectively and the rock will only ever know its own. But I think that in quantum, that's very interesting. Those are very interesting points. The extent, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, to say that a rock knows I'm a rock, so that it's sort of sitting there thinking, yeah, I'm a rock. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a rock. And it's just, <laughs> I think. Um, how should I put it? I'm not convinced that rocks know they're rocks. Oh, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> and and as, as far as quantum physics and all that, uh, they're kind of playing catch-up ball, as they say. You know, I guess they're trying to. Get, they're sort of behind the curve because, like, a lot of people knew, always knew that what's really important is soul and consciousness, and now they're kind of like, you know, better late than ever. Mm. So, but you said something that was very interesting that. Uh, well, th- th- there is, I mean, there is like philosophy called idealism in, in the sense that, like, like Barclay said that everything, Bishop Barclay said that everything that exists is an idea in the mind of God. And and things exist precisely because they are in the mind of God. And, uh, yeah, so I, I guess we agree. Yeah. Well, uh, usually how that goes. <laughs> So I guess you could say, like, objectively, on some level, we're with the rock, like, comrades. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, but, but in our subjective realities, it's very apparent that <laughs> we are superior to the rock. No, but I, th- I think you brought up a very important point, and I'm glad you brought it up, and that is that um, our relationship, let's say, to just matter, or rocks, or whatever, they actually brought a very important point. It's they're also part of God. They're also part of God, and therefore they also. I don't know if I would say you know rocks have their rights, but I would say that for example, let's say I walk outside and, and let's say we're friends. I walk outside and there's a car. Someone says, "Well, that's your what's your name?" Scott. Scott, right, right. So someone says, "That's Scott's car." So if I if I respect you. I'm not going to go and, like, you know, kick your car or <laughs> blow my nose on your car or something. Keep having his nose-blowing analogies. Talking to therapist. Anyway, so, I'm not going to... I mean, it's your car. So, therefore, if I respect you, I respect your property. If that's your house, if that's your car. So, respecting people's property because you respect them is important. And everything that exists belongs to God. And therefore, yeah, we have to respect everything so that, I mean, this cup, for example, is also part of God. It's also God's energy. Green. And, what? Green energy. 
<laughs> so, so this 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 cup is also a link to God. And there's a here's a sense in which there's consciousness in everything, rocks and cups, and, and that God is everywhere. God is within everything, and also I mean, he can hang out in special places. That is, set up a sound system over there. It's a plasma TV. But the idea is that there is consciousness everywhere. There is consciousness. So in the sense that quantum speculation is really leading to God consciousness because in this cup is infinite consciousness. Because God is in the cup and in the rock. And therefore, uh, within everything is the infinite consciousness which generates its existence. And sustains its existence. Since you said that, it kind of reminds me of like, um, like the potential, like when we talk about like potential energy and kinetic energy, uh, everything is potential energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could say that that infinite potential is just the God conscious lying dormant in the rock. Yeah, or, or whereas like life is more kinetic. Or yeah, or actually, actually God in the rock. Right, God is actually in the rock. By the way, there's very, there's amazing how Aristotelian this is after having talked about the inferiority of the material world. <laughs> so, but this is spiritual food. It's, it's a loophole. So, yeah, Aristotle, of course, Aristotle's whole thing is about realizing potential. You know, there, there's the potential and this realized. And Aristotle defines God as the only being who is pure realization. There's, there's no unfulfilled potential. God is absolute fulfillment and realization. And Aristotle also says, he was not like real religious, but I guess he had his piety. So Aristotle's point was that everything we do ultimately is we are attracted to, to use this, we'll be attracted to God because we're trying to fulfill our potential and God is full, fully realized potential. So in pursuing our own interests, however we understand that, we're actually being drawn to the perfect realization of God. Oh, that's cool. That's right, that was like my chemistry lecture and my logic lecture. <laughs> Aris- Aristotle will do it. Oh, Aris- I got Aristotle wrong on the quiz today, so I'm kind of angry about that. <sighs> oh, well. Yes? Oh, here, take this. Why don't you take this one? Yes? My personal experience was LSD. Uh, the only like higher consciousness attained was what you're describing the twilight zone kind of feeling. Well, that's that. The, like, the, the huge feeling of void is my privacy. And I was wondering if you like if you knew any devotees who like circuit using consciousness, like either during the wall shipping, I don't know, or immediately afterwards. Because I know that like, after a few weeks you still have that feeling of I think I think a lot of people sort of relativize what previously they had seen as reality and made them aware that there are other possible states of consciousness. And so, and obviously it's not the greatest thing in the world to be completely dependent on a chemical, which is somewhat erratic in its effects, and limited also. So it sort of it made them aware that there is such a thing as higher consciousness. And its effect on serotonin receptors is very awful. Really? What does it do? Um, it can cause a cascading effect where the serotonin receptors just like receive massive amounts, and then after the trip, they could shut down permanently, 
that's great. And permanently affect your personality. Or permanently alter your state of uh, perception. So it will always taste funny. All right. That's very serious, isn't it? It really is acid. There you go. <laughs> Why don't we just keep it moving around? And around? <laughs> Someone has to be selfish. You can, you, can, you can look, but don't touch. Just keep it moving. Well, I'm gonna... <laughs> They're so used to serving each other. Oh, oh. Well, that's nice. Well, I haven't eaten since noon, so I'm just going to go, go. <laughs> and after two hours of Taekwondo, I'm pretty... Damage. <laughs> Can't do it in my place. Which is also why I was late. Because my feet. I can't walk on them anymore. Why is it? Well, we're all eating, so I won't explain, but. They've <laughs> <laughs> they've <been eating. laughs> Listen, I don't know that could happen. From Taekwondo? Yeah. Oh, yeah, blisters happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think of patients in a coma? Like, patients? Oh, patients like, in a coma. Like, a coma. Right, right. Like, just states oh, that, that, that's Seattle thing. Being, which aren't really, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. are they consciousness? Like, is that, because it's hard to measure, and there are all these, like, biofeedback ways of measuring right, consciousness. Right. What do you think of those? And that, 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 they have that Schiavo case? Mm-hmm. Well, or just any. Yeah. By the way, Schiavo is an Italian word which means slave. So, well, what does the latest science say? I mean, um, there's some brain function, but no higher function. Um, some patients dream, uh, some patients don't. It really depends on the person. But some do dream, so at some level they're still conscious. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't feel that the... I don't think I understand it in perfect. It's, it's an unfortunate situation to be in. Personally, I, like, I never want to be kept in a coma just because I feel as if I'd be something of an entrapment of the consciousness. I don't know. I understand what you mean. Like a limitation? Like get on another... Right, I'd rather die and get on with the afterlife or the next life than cling to this one. But that's a personal choice. Because you can always come out of the coma after 30 years. Really? Are there cases like that? Yeah. But the family's moved on, so it's kind of depressing. But they must. But they get to live again. I mean, if the they must love. I mean, they must. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just very traumatic. Like, people have remarried, or, um, like, the kids are all grown up, things like that. Yes, like Rip and Michael. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's kind of the Rip and Michael syndrome. Not that I'm fine, I should not. Why do you drive off the cliff? Why? Looking for new experiences? No, I, uh, I ran this motor scooter in Corfu. It's a Greek island of Corfu. And uh, I had my uh, friend in the back. We met in we met in Europe, and um, I sort of swerved to avoid a truck on this little little mountain road, mm-hmm. and I blacked out. When I came back, I was sort of 
a hangout. I mean, it wasn't like a sheer clip. It was like that. And I was kind of that, ha- that often happens when you have an accident, you black out. No, uh, the lady was thrown onto the sort of fell onto the road and actually broke her ankle. And uh, the motorcycle, the motor scooter, kind of bounced down to the. Yeah, well, I, and looking back, I think it was very fortunate. And uh, then it was like a movie. I don't, there was an old movie, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Sorba the Greek. So if you think about some biblical scene where they stone someone to death or something, like a mob gathers, like stone someone. So it was an extremely conservative Greek Orthodox community that really had very little contact with um, Westerners back then. But, I mean, they were. I mean, they're in Europe. What's that? What's that on monetary no, no. So I, I couldn't actually couldn't get treatment for the girl. I mean, because I, mean, I went, we went to a doctor, and she was really in pain, and they they wouldn't treat her because they were so. I mean, she was dressed, I guess you could say, in a summer dress, which in America would not raise eyebrows. It was just like a little summer dress, but but in this you know in this remote Greek Orthodox thing, it was scandalous. And and so I couldn't. Um, they wouldn't treat her. They're actually like mocking us. So I had to, so somehow or other, I, you know, we, I, I got us on a bus, I took the bus to Athens. Then I went to the Canadian, yeah, and I went to the Canadian Embassy, so I figured it would be a much shorter line there, which it was, it was a good move. I went to the Canadian Embassy, and, uh, and they recommended a doctor, and then we, you know, they had to have a big you know, cast put on, full-length cast. Day in the life. I want to know about the furniture store. <laughs> <laughs> you burned the furniture store? Then? You got thrown no, out. No, no, I got thrown out of the furniture store in Heidelberg, Germany. <laughs>